The Guardian. I'm John Green, and you're listening to the Guardian Children's Book Podcast. I'm going to read a little bit from my book, The Fault in Our Stars. This is the very beginning of the book. Late in the winter of my 17th year, my mother decided I was depressed, presumably because I rarely left the house, spent quite a lot of time in bed, read the same book over and over, ate infrequently, and devoted quite a bit of my abundant free time to thinking about death. Whenever you read a cancer booklet or website or whatever, they always list depression among the side effects of cancer. But in fact, depression is not a side effect of cancer. Depression is a side effect of dying. Cancer is also a side effect of dying. Almost everything is, really. But my mom believed I required treatment, so she took me to see my regular Dr. Jim, who agreed that I was veritably swimming in a paralyzing and totally clinical depression, and that therefore my meds should be adjusted and also I should attend a weekly support group. The support group featured a rotating cast of characters in various states of tumor-driven unwellness. Why did the cast rotate? A side effect of dying. The support group, of course, was depressing as hell. It met every Wednesday in the basement of a stone-walled Episcopal church shaped like a cross. We all sat in a circle, right in the middle of the cross, where the two boards would have met, where the heart of Jesus would have been. I noticed this because Patrick, the support group leader and only person over 18 in the room, talked about the heart of Jesus every freaking meeting, all about how we as young cancer survivors were sitting right in God's very sacred heart and whatever— So here's how it went in God's heart. The six or seven or ten of us walked slash wheeled in, grazed at a decrepit selection of cookies and lemonade, sat down in the circle of trust, and listened to Patrick recount for the thousandth time his depressingly miserable life story, how he had cancer in his balls and they thought he was going to die, but he didn't die, and now here he is, a full-grown adult in a church basement in the 137th nicest city in America, divorced, addicted to video games, mostly friendless, eking out a meager living by exploiting his cancer-tastic past, slowly working his way toward a master's degree that will not improve his career prospects, waiting, as we all do, for the sword of Damocles to give him the relief that he escaped Lotho's many years ago when cancer took both of his nuts but spared what only the most generous soul would call his life. And you too might be so lucky. Then we introduced ourselves. Name, age, diagnosis, and how we're doing today. I'm Hazel, I'd say when they get to me. 16, thyroid originally, but with an impressive and long-settled satellite colony in my lungs and I'm doing okay. Once we got around the circle, Patrick always asked if anyone wanted to share, and then began the circle jerk of support, everyone talking about fighting and battling and winning and shrinking and scanning. To be fair to Patrick, he let us talk about dying, too. But most of them weren't dying. Most would live into adulthood as Patrick had which meant there was quite a lot of competitiveness about it, with everybody wanting to beat not only cancer itself, but also the other people in the room. Like, I realize that this is irrational, but when they tell you that you have, say, a 20% chance of living five years, the math kicks in, and you figure that's one in five, and so you look around and think, as any healthy person would, I gotta outlast four of these bastards. The only redeeming facet of support group was this kid named Isaac, a long-faced, skinny guy with straight blonde hair swept over one eye. 
His eyes were the problem. He had some fantastically improbable eye cancer, and one eye had been cut out when he was a kid, and now he wore the kind of thick glasses that made his eyes, both the real one and the glass one, preternaturally huge, like his whole head was basically just this fake eye and this real eye staring at you. From what I could gather on the rare occasions when Isaac shared with the group, a recurrence had placed his remaining eye in mortal peril. Isaac and I communicated almost exclusively through sighs. Each time someone discussed anti-cancer diets or snorting ground-up shark fin or whatever, he'd glance over at me and sigh ever so slightly, and I'd shake my head microscopically and exhale in response. So support group blew, and after a few weeks I grew to be rather kicking and screaming about the whole affair. In fact, on the Wednesday I made the acquaintance of Augustus Waters, I tried my level best to get out of support group while sitting on the couch with my mom in the third leg of a 12-hour marathon of the previous season's America's Next Top Model, which admittedly I had already seen, but still. Me. I refused to attend support group. Mom. One of the symptoms of depression is disinterest in activity. Me. Please, let's just watch America's Next Top Model. It's an activity. Mom. Television is a passivity. Me. Ugh. Mom, please. Mom. Hazel, you're a teenager. You're not a little kid anymore. You need to make friends. Get out of the house. Live your life. Me. If you want me to be a teenager, don't send me to support group. Buy me a fake ID so I can go to clubs, drink vodka, and take pot. Mom. You don't take pot, for starters. Me. See? That's the kind of thing I would know if you'd get me a fake ID. Mom. You're going to support group. Me. Ugh. Mom. Hazel, you deserve a life. That shut me up, although I failed to see how attendance at support group met the definition of life. Still, I agreed to go, after negotiating the right to record the next 1.5 episodes of America's Next Top Model. I went to support group for the same reason that I'd once allowed nurses with a mere 18 months of graduate education to poison me with exotically named chemicals. I wanted to make my parents happy. There's only one thing in this world shittier than biting it from cancer when you're 16, and that's having a kid who bites it from cancer. Fortin Our Stars is our teen book club book of the month, so we've had loads of questions from teens who've read it and want to ask you all about it. A lot of the questions have been about the inspiration between behind the book and the characters. So perhaps we could kick off there and you could tell me a bit about how this book started, what you first knew about the characters. Well, it started in, in 2001, I guess. I, I worked briefly as a student chaplain at a children's hospital in Ohio. And when I was there, I met a lot of young people with cancer and I met a lot of young people who, who died of various causes. And I wanted to write something about them and and them as I had known them, because I had not known them to be merely sad or merely wise. I, I'd known them to be smart and funny and angry and just like other people. And so I, I wanted to try to capture that. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't. Uh, I spent about eight years failing magnificently at, at writing this book. And then in 2009, I became friends with a young woman named Esther Earle, um, who was a reader of my books, a fan of our videos. And Esther was dying of cancer throughout our friendship or was was terminally ill throughout our friendship but and and through our friendship and knowing her and and seeing her family and getting to be friends with her friends the book really came to life for me and so then after 8 years of it of struggling with it and putting it away and bringing it back out it it all came very quickly 
What about Augustus? Because one of our readers, um, Rachel from Wisconsin, knew about Esther. She said, I know Hazel Grace was somewhat based on Esther. But did Augustus have a different inspiration? No, I guess is the short answer. Um, I, I wasn't thinking about anyone specific, but you know, there are lots of people in my life who, at least initially, seemed very performative. You know, seemed very practiced in their charisma. Like my best friend Chris is is like that. Like when you meet Chris for the first time, you're blown away by how charismatic and funny and quick-witted this guy is. And you just think like, oh, there's no one like that in the world. And then you get to know Chris and you realize that there really is no one like that in the world because he's not like that either. And and that journey, you know, a- away from the performative self toward the authentic self is one that really interests me. And so I, I wanted I wanted Gus to be like that. So, but, you know, I, I drew from lots of different places for that. What was it like writing as a as a female, as a as a teenage girl, Hazel, did that come easily? Or I, I understand that writing about clothes didn't necessarily come easily. Yeah, I definitely didn't know. I, don't, I still don't know anything about clothes. And I mostly just tried to avoid it. But whenever it was absolutely necessary, I would write something and then my wife would correct me because it was always... All of my books in, in my mind, of course, are set in 1994 when I was 16 or 17. And so all of the, fortunately for me, uh, sundresses have returned to style. So I'm able again to imagine flower print sundresses, which um, in my mind is all, any, all anyone wears. <laughs> but yeah, my, my wife helped a lot with that. But as far as writing from a female perspective, I mean, I do have a lot of women in my life who, who, who could tell me when I was sounded off off key to them. But when I felt like I had to write from a woman's perspective, I felt very intimidated. But once I discovered Hazel's perspective, and I was writing specifically from her point of view, it became much easier because I didn't feel like I was trying to write about, you know, a woman. I felt like I was trying to write about Hazel. But that's also writing about a teenager. And that's a teenager's voice. And uh, Romy H wants to know, this is possibly quite a creepy question. Do you watch young people and listen to their conversations as part of your research? Do you, do you listen in? Do you eavesdrop? I mean, I eavesdrop on everyone, not just young people, but I'm a horrible eavesdropper. I'm fascinated by what people sound like when they're not talking to me. So I'm a terrible person to go out to dinner with because I have absolutely no interest in talking to my uh, dinner companions uh, because it's so rare that you get to sit next to people and they're telling their greatest secrets to you as a stranger. But I, I do read, you know, thousands of messages from teenagers every day on, on Twitter and Tumblr and YouTube. Um, so I'm aware of the way they write, um, but most of this is is imagination. And, you know, also kind of the use of heightened language, heightened dialogue to try to reflect the emotional reality of the important conversations that we have with each other, rather than trying to reflect a sort of uh, straightforward, uh, literal conversations, which never take place in real sentences, including this sentence, which if you tried to diagram, you would fail. (laughs) Of course, it is a very heightened emotion in this book because we're dealing with dying and death and sex and teenagers and all that sort of thing. And I don't want to dwell on this for too long because it's been raked over and over. But there's this, the, the cichlid controversy. This is the accusation by another newspaper that um, you've been glamorising shocking life and death issues and that, that you shouldn't be doing this. I don't think the person who wrote that article had read my book. She certainly didn't claim to have read it, and it was pretty clear that from the article that she hadn't read it. But my response to it is that I think the exact same number of books about sick people 
uh, were published for teenagers in 2010 and in 2009 and in 2002 and in 1996 as today, and uh, to pretend that it's some kind of trend or, or some emerging problem is, uh, is ridiculous. The responsibility of the novelist, in my opinion, is to try to tell true stories. Even when you're making up a story, you're always trying to tell a true story. And uh, the truth is that uh, the suffering and dying unjustly, unfairly, without reason of children has been part of human history every single day that humans have existed on this planet. To deny 40,000 years of that history would not be honest. I think. And in the end, I don't find it at all convincing. There is the underlying issue of um, whether there's an obligation to the audience not to talk about difficult topics. And I just, in the end, I don't believe that. I think my responsibility to my readers is to be, is to be honest. This book has become so popular. It's a New York Times bestseller. You were already famous in, in certain places on social media. It's propelled you to a greater height of fame. And we do have a question from Mike, who says, how have you adapted to this level of exposure? For me, at least, it happened slowly, not all at once. So it, it, it wasn't a question of, um, you know, sort of overnight having to, to, to live with a different kind of uh, audience or anything. It's amazing to have so many people reading the book. It's really wonderful. And it's something that I, I could never have imagined. I mean, I didn't think anyone would want to read this book, to be honest with you. But that's why writers shouldn't be trusted, I guess, to be publishers. It's very, very fulfilling. When you, when you write a book, you always hope that, that it will find readers who, who care about it and who will treat it generously. And I've been very lucky that, that so many of my readers have done that. So because you didn't expect so many people to read it, that's why you offered to sign every... <laughs> Every yeah. pre-ordered copy, which resulted in you signing, what was it, 150,000 copies. I want to know about that. What, what did that feel like? Did you enter into some kind of trance state as you were signing these copies, or was, did it just hurt too much? I loved it. It was really nice. I never liked, I don't want to complain about writing or making videos or any of it, because it's, it's all great work, and I feel very lucky to do it. And whenever I complain to my dad about writing, he, he always says, like, well, it ain't coal mining. And that's very true. I find it very difficult a lot of times to write. I find it very socially um, and emotionally isolating uh, to, to, to be, you know, 10 or 12 hours a day in that, in that world. Whereas uh, the great thing about the signing is that for three months, my full-time job, seven days a week, was to sign my name over and over and over it again. three months. Yeah, $150,000 is a lot, actually. In the abstract, you think like, well, that's a large number. Um, but then when you are actually presented with 150,000 sheets of paper and you have to sign each one of them, it took three months and almost that was eight hours a day, seven days a week. But the great thing about it was that when I finished for the day, when I'd reached my quota for that day, I wasn't at work anymore. And that's a lovely feeling. When you're writing, you're sort of never not at work because you're always thinking of ideas and, and worrying and, and trying to figure out plot points and stuff. And for those three months, I was doing nothing but signing and watching really bad television. So. Like using your other arm. Did you feel No, I never. I, tried, I wanted to learn how to do that. And I signed one left-handed, and you can't. It doesn't look anything like my signature. It looks like a two-year-old's drawing of a, of a stick man or something. But the person who got that, that autograph put it on Tumblr and was very happy to have gotten it. So, so that's good, I guess. Yeah, that's the one that's going to be worth something. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> the different one. Um, you mentioned something about the isolation of being a writer. Is that one of the reasons that you, you tend to do collaborations quite a bit? So you, there's Will Grayson, Will Grayson, and Let It Snow, the book of interconnected stories. Do you enjoy collaboration as a contrast to that isolation? 
I do, yeah, and that, that's exactly why I think I find it so interesting. It's easy to get stuck in your head as a writer, and collaborating forces you to listen to other people. Um, I also collaborate in videos a lot with my brother, and um, it, it, it forces you to remember that your uh, brain, your consciousness is not the only one on, on the planet, which can be a hard thing to remember sometimes. The, the videos there have been hugely popular, and you've been described as a professional YouTuber, which actually sounds like quite a painful affliction it's true but Um, it's yeah (laughs) and we've got a question from uh this is darren who says i've been a follower of the vlog brothers for quite some time however i have yet to read one of your books slap on the wrist if you could choose one which is the best one for me to start with oh i guess i'd start with the fault in our stars probably it's the one that i i spent the longest on and i guess that's the closest to me and then i might read backwards from there i guess but um there's no, there's no wrong way to read them. I, I will say that that person is, is in no way alone. Most of the people who watch our videos have no idea or certainly have never read any of my books. And uh, I think most of the people who read my books don't know that I make YouTube videos. And, and that's okay. The crossover is extensive of the Venn diagram, but it's okay, that, uh, it's okay to just watch the videos. Don't feel bad. Um, no, but seriously, buy, buy my books. You started out as a reviewer. And did that help you to become a writer? This is of particular interest to uh, members of the Guardian Children's Book site because they are uh, very enthusiastic reviewers. We post two reviews a day on the site written by um, children and teens reviewing children and teen books because they're the readers of the books and they should be reviewing them. So you reviewed hundreds of books as a reviewer. Do you think that helped you to become a writer? It was hugely important to me, not only to read so many good books, but also to read a lot of not not so great ones. Um, you know, to read a lot of books that weren't famous, that like weren't winning the Booker Prize or whatever, it was hugely important to me because to read broadly, that's when you get a sense of critical reading. That's when you get a sense of how it works. Like, how do we turn text on a page, which is really just, you know, scratches on paper, how do we turn that into ideas that have a life in our minds? And I think both by reading good books and by reading bad books, you you learn how that happens. And that that's something I still carry with me. And I still like to review for that reason, because it forces me to to read differently, to read critically and thoughtfully and, and carefully. At the moment, you're completely immersed in, in publicizing the Fault in Our Stars. You're over here doing a, a tour and all kinds of big events. Are you working on anything else at the moment? What's, what's coming up? What's next for your fans? I'm going to go home from this trip. I get home on February 10th, and I'm going to write a book. Not right away, not, not on February 10th, but then, you know over the next year or two. Good morning, Hank. It's Tuesday. Landed in London early in the morning, not even sure what day it was. These buses, by the way, are not just a cliche, they're also actual public transport. In a stunning turn of events, it's raining in England. Got something to drink and eat, because I'm a rebel, and then came outside six minutes later, and the sun was shining, because England. Went to the BBC to do a radio interview, where they let me play Elton John's actual piano. God, I'm good at piano. Dropped off my bags at a very nice hotel room, featuring a well-dressed headless woman and pages from a children's book, and there was a gift bag from Penguin, containing warm English beer and Marmite, naturally, as well as a signed Steven Gerrard jersey, which, not to brag, I look great in. Then I broke one of my rules of conquering jet lag, but only briefly. No laying down! Took a taxi to the Penguin offices, where there is currently a very schmancy display for the Fault in Our Stars, and then went up to the 10th floor to enjoy the same view of London that Winston Churchill once had during the Second World War. Then I went to the Guardian, which has extremely nice chairs, and also a view of houseboats and canals that reminded me of Amsterdam. It was way too early to go to sleep, so I headed over to the British Museum of Old Things and Other Miscellany with Tanya and Jody. I saw people seeing the Rosetta Stone, and then after a long 
long while, I saw the Rosetta Stone itself with its trilingual declaration that helped us decode hieroglyphics. I saw sarcophagi and tomb lids and a giant bug and manimals who guarded the king's apartment. Then we headed over to the Greeks and the Romans where I saw this guy with his junk permanently attached to his toga who was better off than this guy who was missing both arms, his nose, and his junk. This monument featured some of the decapitated women and then I saw some downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio